Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that hates penis envy. Uh, uh, sorry, I mean Freud. <laughs> Get it? That was a Freudian slip, you guys. <laughs> um, today, That's we good. had... Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I worked really hard on that. <laughs> That's extremely powerful. I don't know how I didn't see that earlier. I am just like, oh my God. Um, today we have Julia, Zoe, Laura, and Bianca. And today we are also joined by an amazing guest, Sashang. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Yes, cheer for yourself. Great. Yes, Uh, yes, you should. Um, Sashank is a member of our Discord community um, and has been in our reading groups, and I've learned a ton from him already in some of our reading group discussions, so I'm really excited for us to talk more today. Um, Do you want to introduce yourself briefly for the listeners who may not know you yet? May not have the privilege. Yes. (laughs) But if they joined our Patreon podcast, what are you doing? Not being in our reading groups, but you know, whatever. Real ones know. Anyway. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm Sashank. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute, um, where I study computational psychiatry. Um, I'm currently working on understanding how anxious beliefs are maintained and how that interacts with past and current experiences, both internal and external. And I'm super excited and honored to be here today. (laughs) Oh, my God. We're super excited and honored to have you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So today we're going to be talking about, um, well, Freud, if you didn't get that from the intro, but also some other pieces of the problematic history of psychology and psychiatry, and then some newer and more radical practices that folks are working on um, that kind of go against that or... um, you know, fill in some of those gaps. Um, So we wanted to start out with a little bit of just like an overview of some of the bullshit that has existed in psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, So which there's a lot, so we're not going to cover all of it. But um, I wanted to start with just a little bit about the history of queer and trans identity kind of being pathologized and viewed as a mental illness. Um, So in the 1500s, the first laws against gay sex were passed, if not earlier, that's like the earliest they were passed in the UK at least. Um, And in the 1800s, this concept cropped up called sexual inversion, which was essentially a response to this idea that being gay was a crime. And instead people wanted to say, What if we looked at this as a disease? Because that means you're not a bad person. You just are sick, which is still bad. But um, so one of the people um, who sort of came up with the groundwork for this idea was this guy, Carl Heinrich Ulrichs. He was a lawyer and queer activist, and he coined this term for queer people called earnings with a U, um, which I think is kind of fun. And maybe we should bring that back. But he essentially argued that gay people were born that way and used that kind of similar to what we've seen more recently with like the born this way movement. He used it as an argument for why queerness shouldn't be treated as like a crime or something that needed to be controlled or punished or cured. 
Um, unfortunately, though, that idea kind of evolved and was picked up by the medical establishment. And the argument became that it was something that was maybe inborn, but it should still be treated as an illness that could be cured and still kind of like a social problem that needs a solution. Um, so this sexologist, which is a great um, career title, named <laughs> Havelock Ellis, um, coined the term or popularized at least the term sexual inversion. Um, and basically it was an argument to defend homosexuality as not being a disease and being just like how some people could be, but it still ended up being used as a framework in psychological treatment where gay patients were treated as having a mental illness. Um, and the idea was also supported by this guy, Manus Hirschfeld, who was an openly gay doctor, um, probably one of the first because this was the 1800s, who advocated for decriminalizing queerness. Um, so this idea did have like some positive impacts, but overall sort of ended up being used by the medical establishment in a negative way. Um, and then moving into the 1900s, there's sort of this increasing trend of queerness being seen more as a disease than a crime, but the response still being very punitive and tied into the legal system in some way. Um, so we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but homosexuality was one of many quote unquote sexual disorders that were listed in the first DSM in 1952. So fucked. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a mess. Um, and that was not removed until 1973, largely due to the work of queer activists. Um, trans identity wasn't included in the first DSM, which I think is more a case of like lack of knowledge and conflating queerness and transness, which is sort of something that existed in sexual inversion where it was like, oh, you got like the wrong gender's sexual attraction. So there was sort of this like conflation of the two. Um, but gender identity disorder, as it was called, was added to the DSM in 1980. And then that was changed to something some trans activists preferred gender dysphoria in 2012. Um, unfortunately, just like with queer identity, while some people were in favor of this, it's also continued to go hand in hand with pathologizing and gatekeeping trans identity. Um, and a lot of trans activists didn't want any sort of disorder tied to gender identity to be listed in the DSM at all. Basically their argument is that the majority of mental health problems that trans folks experience are more due to like violence and harassment and discrimination as opposed to being tied directly to being trans. Um, and still today, in many cases, trans folks who want to access gender-affirming healthcare need to prove that they have experienced gender dysphoria. Um, again, something that is classified as a mental illness. Um, so one thing that I wanted to mention um, before we kind of move on to our next section is just um, this idea of autogynephilia that has come up a little bit recently in the discourse um, because unfortunately, some terrible people have been supporting it and talking about how it's good and it's not. Um, but I wanted to mention it because this concept is really, there's a very clear line from sexual inversion to this concept that noted piece of shit, Ray Blanchard uh, mm. developed, which is called autogynephilia or AGP. Um, for anyone who is blessedly unaware of what that is, it's a theory that some trans women are actually straight men who have a sexual fetish where they're so attracted to women that they also want to be women. Um, this has absolutely no scientific basis. Like it was not based on 
any form of scientific method. And they've done the test that supposedly measures this disorder on cis women. And the majority of cis women get test results that indicate they have AGP, <laughs> which really suggests like there's no scientific validity to this theory. It is just a normal part of the majority of female sexuality. Um, and, you know, even if it wasn't, I think that treating this as like a disease is still very problematic. Um, so I really don't want to devote too much time to this truly evil man and concept, but for anyone who is interested in kind of reading more about this and a more thorough debunking of this concept, should check out Julia Serrano's work. Um, she is a really great activist and researcher who has done a lot of work on this. So I'll just send folks there for more. Um, and I think, yeah, next, Sashank, did you want to talk a little bit about um, kind of the history of psychiatry and psychology and racism? Yeah, totally. So this kind of parallels the weaponization of psychology and psychiatry to pathologize black folks and neurodivergent folks, um, again, all the way from the 1800s. So in the 1800s, it was used to justify slavery and racism. So um, drapetomania was a disease that was invented specifically to pathologize black folks that were trying to escape slavery. Um, and then kind of post the civil uh, war, the like conditions of black folks was blamed on like their having freedom. So like freedom was, their freedom was supposedly treated as a cause of mm. a mental illness, quote unquote, rather than the, you know, historic oppression. Um, also, um, psychology and psychiatry were both extremely central to the eugenics movement uh, in the 1900s, uh, which, you know, like the, the whole concept of IQ and like genetic basis of intelligence was used specifically to um, enact mass genocide mm. and justify it and also to justify forced sterilizations um, which was again disproportionately of black women um, and then moving later on there's this continuing pathologization of black folks so um, schizophrenia took on this very racialized quality so it was overdiagnosed in black folks um, and there's, there's this idea of protest psychosis which um, was basically used as a way to pathologize any form of protest against structural racism as hostility or aggression or psychotic um, tendencies to, again, negate uh, any validity to that protest. And um, kind of along the same lines, there's this continuing pathologization that continues to this day of neurodivergent folks um, pathologizing their existence and like forcing compliance to this um, abstract norm of behavior um, and like continuing to traumatize them in order to do that. So like, I wanted to bring up a kind of specific example that continues to this day um, of like traumatization and abuse of autistic folks. So um, this behavioral psychologist, Ivar Lovas, developed something called applied behavioral analysis, which was basically a way to force compliance on autistic folks and autistic kids to force them to behave like neurotypical kids with the use of like extreme aversive conditioning and electric shocks. And um, 
like it's no surprise that this is the same guy who worked on conversion therapy for mm, uh, gender nonconformity, right? Um, and the the horrible thing about ABA or behavioral analysis is it continues to this day. It's actually widely used and like continues to have a lot of support, despite the fact that it emphasizes compliance over um, the needs of the individual. Like basically, they don't they don't care about what this person needs or wants to communicate or is experiencing or what distress they're going through. It's all about complying to the sort of behavioral norms that the psychologist or psychiatrist um, decides. Um, and a specific example of this that is very recently relevant is um, there's the center in Massachusetts called the Judge Roddenberg Center, where another behavioral psychologist, Matthew Israel, developed like an electric shock device specifically for this purpose of like forcing people to comply with neurotypical behavioral norms. And it's like, to this day, it's being used to torture autistic and neurodivergent folks who are, by the way, largely black and Hispanic. In 2020, the FDA uh, actually banned this device because of the psychological and physiological harm that it causes. It's like a shock that's some like 30 times more powerful than a police taser and, you know, gives folks PTSD and, and like trauma and they've like spoken out against it. And again, largely due to the organizing of autistic folks, the FDA banned this device in 2020, but the ban was overturned this July. Um, and so like this center continues to shock folks into compliance, you know, using this justification from a long history of um, psychology. Yeah, so, uh, well, my dad is an autism uh, specialist, uh, brag, I guess, because, um, <laughs> mainly oh, yeah. because my older brother has autism and was diagnosed in the 80s, and there was, like, so little known about autism at the time that my dad was like, I guess I have to find out. But so there's, um, like, in a similar vein of what Sashank was saying, there's, like, really disproportionate diagnostics for Black kids kids and people in general with autism because they're often diagnosed with like oppositional defiant disorder or other like behavioral disorders because it's seen as this like kind of purposeful acting out versus like white kids are seen as like oh you have autism like this isn't your fault um so yeah just just very fucked up <laughs> there's also i wanted to mention there's actually an article on the history of schizophrenia and how it was used to criminalize like the diagnosis started being used more on black people um, during the civil rights era to criminalize civil rights activists, like Sashank was saying. And there's this article about it. I'll try to find so we can share. I think it's on psychology today, which is interesting because usually they're trash. So maybe I'm misremembering, but there definitely is an article. Um, so yeah, I also wanted to talk about the way that psychiatry was used um, against housewives. So in the 50s, a lot of middle class white women were serving as housewives. And this is kind of the like, I say middle class intentionally, even though we know that's kind of like a bullshit label, but it's, you know, not working class women that had to work like they are able to stay home and work, but also not rich enough to hire someone else to do it. So that's like, yeah, the best describer. But anyway, when these women would go to their doctor or you know, psychologists or whoever, and say that they were feeling like exhausted, overworked from the domestic labor, they would just be like, oh, here's like amphetamines. And then similarly, if 
the same women were like, you know, I'm like not finding fulfillment in life or like I'm depressed. Like I want more out of life, whatever. They would just be like, oh, like here's benzos, calm down. Everything's fine. So in all of these examples, just psychiatry is used as a tool of oppressors to keep people oppressed versus of course, to actually help them. And then I also wanted to talk a little bit about some of the other sexual disorders. Um, Julia gave a really great summary of the history of queer and trans pathology in the DSM. And I wanted to talk about a few of the other things that are under the same category, if you will. So most notably, um, there's female orgasmic disorder, female sexual interest slash arousal disorder. And it is no longer in use, but there was female hypersexuality disorder. Um, and the presence of these in the DSM, aside from showing how patriarchal it is and how these like normal behaviors are pathologized, particularly in women, of course, this is like very gendered and bioessentialist, but as Julia went over, that's really all we can expect from the DSM. <laughs> and this isn't to say like there are, of course, psychological factors that can play into someone's sex drive, ability to have an orgasm and like these things in general, but it also essentially pathologizes like people who are asexual or people who just have a higher sex drive. Um, and that may not be tied to any other mental health thing that they're going through. And yeah, it just kind of dictates whatever this like normal amount of sex or sex drive is and then determines like what is outside of that. And a lot of the thing with the DSM is a lot of the diagnostic criteria are so vague. So it's like very subjective to who's doing it. Like for the um, right. sexual interest one, the first criteria is like a lack of sexual interest. But like what literally what does that mean? That's like could be anything depending on who's doing it. So can see direct lines between this type of pathologizing and hysteria, which I think we've talked about on a couple other episodes, which was just essentially a blanket term used to diagnose women experiencing a myriad of symptoms. And one of the common like cures for this was that doctors would essentially try to induce an orgasm in people because they'd be like, that will cure it. That's all these women need is just like to have an orgasm. Uh, and yeah, you can go back to uh, our history of gynecology episode for more on that. Gosh, the, the, the whole history of the DSM is just a documentation of like all of the different op mm -hmm. oppressive dimensions. Mm -hmm. Also, we're only on like the DSM four or five? Five. Yeah, five. But it's been around for like how long? Like that's not very many iterations. <laughs> I think next we kind of wanted to give just like a, some general like existing issues with psychology. Um, that's, yes, that's what we're moving on to. Uh, so Chuck, do you want to start us off? Yeah, uh, so that like even, even going to sort of psychology that is not specifically about like psychiatry or pathology, um, there's this general alignment with capitalism and kind of individualistic like profit maximization ideals. So like util utility maximization is such mm -hmm. a widespread like psychological tenet. It's part of all of our theories and ideas. It's kind of like so pervasive that you don't even see it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just taken as the given, like, of course, everybody is doing utility maximization. And if they're not, something must be wrong with them. Um, mm -hmm. And this like um, emphasis on individual productivity. So anything 
um, that deviates from that is, is like a shortcoming that needs to be fixed with the individual taking away the emphasis on like disabling oppressive systems that surround the individual. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think there's this very pervasive idea, I think, especially in American society where like productivity is seen as part and parcel with neurotypicality and having no physical disability or that like neurotypicality, having no physical disability are necessary conditions for being productive, quote unquote. And so in order to like, like in the eyes of like a lot of doctors, psychiatrists and stuff, when they see patients who are neurodivergent or have a physical disability, it's like their first attempt is to like correct for that instead of trying to like figure out options that allow for them to like flourish in the environments that they're working in, like, or like make accommodations for the disabilities they have, like the immediate um, reflexive sort of like, I don't know, immediate like, desire to correct quote unquote for disability, I think is like, yeah, like very tied to capitalism. And I think a terrible structural flaw. Totally. Right. And the correction is also like in the direction of capitalism. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You know, if, yeah. You have, if, if you have a person with ADHD, let me tell you all the ways that you can fix your productivity so that you can work better. Right. Like, rather right. than anything about like living. Yeah. Like quality <laughs> of life. Yeah. Right. And, um, like the other like wing of this is how central the psychiatric uh, or mental health industrial complex is to the carceral pipeline to the like prison system. So uh, some like stats that really shocked me were that ninety percent of psychiatric care beds um, are in prisons and jails, and fifty percent of police deaths. Um, are of disabled, neurodivergent, or mentally ill folks, and you're like vastly more likely to face uh, dire consequences if you have any of these uh, identities or conditions. Yeah, I just wanted to quickly jump in here because I think like there's this sort of widespread cultural image of neurodivergent and mentally ill folks as dangerous and criminals, right. but if you have a mental illness, you are way more likely to be the victim of a crime or police violence than to be the person that's committing a crime. Um, So yeah, that's another thing that I think is worth noting just because that's not necessarily the image that we're like presented with often. Right. And this is kind of compounded by the fact that like a lot of psychiatric institutions are carceral in and of themselves, Like, um, like involuntary hospitalization, is like a carceral system that like um which which goes to the fact that like you know uh, if you're having a mental health crisis people immediately think to call 911 and call the cops and mm. even if the person who shows up isn't a cop um is maybe a mental health worker or social worker it's very likely that this person rather than getting any meaningful help is going to be involuntarily hospitalized or restrained or secluded and that like would just compound the trauma that they're enduring yeah absolutely uh um you know continuing in the vein of (laughs) all of this being so fucked um 
you know, our our enemy of the pod, the American Psychological Association or APA, uh, you know, I just I know we've talked about this before, but I just need to hammer home that they also literally uh, wrote out what torture like proper torture techniques could be um, and put that was put into pamphlets at the School of the Americas. Um, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, the School of the Americas was shut down because of those things. Um, but no, it actually was reopened under in the same exact spot under just a different name called the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation. And um, just as a little bit of background, the School of the Americas has trained more than 83,000 Latin American security forces since its founding. Um, and there, that includes a dozen dictators and some of the worst human rights violations on the continent, um, you know, including like mass disappearances and things like that. Like the people who have done some of the worst shit were trained at like the hands of the American Psychological Association's training on uh, torturing techniques. And of course, while this is like, a reflection of how fucked up this field is. It also hammers home that the imperialistic regime of the United States is not only like creating its own hegemony within the United States, which we've talked about, I think, a lot, like of upholding white supremacy, patriarchy and those things, but it also um, seeks to create a uh, hegemony of uh, U.S. supremacy in the world and particularly in the Western hemisphere. Yeah. What I wanted to talk about next is sort of connected to what you just said, Laura, and also it's sort of like a meta commentary on the field of psychology as a whole, but it also connects to, I think things we were discussing before about uh, the disparate ways that black, black and Latinx or just generally non-white patients are treated versus white patients. Um, I want to talk about a phenomenon that I basically learned about and experienced during my time in undergrad as a cognitive science major. It's this thing within the field of psychology research and really most kinds of research that draws from human subjects that academics have termed weird populations. And weird is an acronym that stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. I've also seen W stand for white. Um, and academics, uh, Joseph Heinrich, Stephen J. Hine, and Ara Norenzian were the first to publish on it uh, in 2010. And what they argued in this paper is that behavioral scientists in the papers they publish often make these like broad sweeping claims about human nature, the fundamental characteristics of human behavior, like based on these studies they conducted where the vast majority, if not all of the subjects in their study fit into this weird descriptive category. So there's obviously a lot of disastrous implications to this phenomenon. Um, for example, there are instances where papers got published with like really big findings about humans capability for visual perception, humans capability for moral reasoning, which drew from entirely like weird populations. And then when different scientists tried to replicate these findings in non-weird populations, they found completely different things. Um, so that's obviously a problem. And I think findings like these also like reinforce the narrative that the way Western people think and behave is the default, is like the standard quote unquote, whereas people in the global South and non-Western areas, non-white people generally, like the way they think and behave 
is as a result sort of seen as like deviant or secondary or anomalous. And of course, in the field of academic research, that's a very dangerous idea to propagate. Um, and I think there are a couple reasons why this happens. I think the majority of them are sometimes due to individual researchers' fault, but I think more broadly due to structural failures in like the academic realm as a whole. So I guess one thing I wanted, I was thinking about was like the world of academic research, like academia in general, still pre, still like privileges publishing in journals as a marker of success and importance. And like publishing is still a, a Western centric sort of thing. And so like in order to be published, it behooves researchers to present their findings as like very groundbreaking, eye-catching, profound. Like they wanna say something like big and grand, which then incentivizes them to make sweeping statements about how humans fundamentally are. Like that is like the headline in the paper that gets published despite obvious limitations in their study design, like who the subjects are and the diversity of those subjects. So I think that's one reason why this kind of thing tends to happen. Another thing is I think just like, I mean, in my experience also like funding for research is incredibly hard to come by even at universities that have a lot of money to give away. Um, and also the pace of research is just, is just so fast. And so the process of like diversifying the subject pool by like traveling internationally, like, or using other methods to find subjects who do not fit into this weird category would be either like financially or logistically prohibitive. And it's like pretty unfortunate. And I think it speaks to like structural shifts that need to happen in the world of psychology research and any research that draws from human subjects. And so I guess I wanted to ask Sashank, like, did you have any thoughts about this? Do you have any thoughts on like, if or how the field should change in order to take greater swaths of the population into account before drawing these kinds of big conclusions? Yeah, totally. And I, I think the problem is actually even deeper than um, just the data sets, because it's not just the people that are studied um, that, that are not diverse, but it's also the people setting the agenda, like yeah. deciding what the questions should be, um, are also very limited. And so I think um, we don't like, I don't think it's enough to just diversify the subject pool because as we've seen, like what the, with the stuff that we just talked about, there's this like rich history of like, you know, um, Western cis white straight men going to all of these different populations and treating them as curiosities to be studied with this like exoticized lens. Um, and I think the only way to avoid that is self-advocacy and to like let people uh, take charge of their, you know, studying their own communities. Mm -hmm. And I think like this, especially like is a huge problem in neurodivergent um, populations. So non-autistic folks have long asked really meaningless questions about the minds of autistic folks because mm -hmm. they don't have any reference for the experience and so it's either the behavioral norm is defined based on a non-autistic experience and then like pathologizing the autistic folks or just people taking wild guesses of like, oh, right. this yeah. autistic person must think this and hence that's why they're behaving this way, like with right. no evidence whatsoever. And so even the way the question is asked is very skewed towards the biases of like the person who has no lived experience with with that you know yeah. uh, so i think like you know wh whether it's 
autistic folks should be given the resources to self-advocate and like work on their own condition and their own disabilities that they face in the world. And, you know, th- th- this, this sort of, I think goes for in general, most populations. Um, it should be, I-, I think all the way up to who sets the agenda, who asks the question and then how the data is collected and analyzed should mm-hmm. all be kind of diversified. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I think one example I was reading about recently that I think like illustrates how this can go wrong kind of well is um, there's like this idea that men take more risks than women or like more risk taking. And they've done a lot of studies on these like weird populations that seem to show that that's the case. And then that's been used to argue that there's like, maybe there's a biological basis for that, like gender differences are inborn because this is why people are like this. But then when other psychologists in other countries with like different cultural beliefs about gender roles have done the same studies, they get very different results. And like, sometimes there's no difference. Sometimes women take more risks, like, so it's it's like completely different results as to something that is then treated as like a biological reality when it's like this is actually coming from like possibly flawed psychological research it's definitely a big issue um okay another uh, oh, no, go sorry for it. another example of this uh kind of more historical oh, is um maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah 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 yeah, yeah. which um basically Abraham Maslow went to the um, Blackfoot nation um, of indigenous people, and he had a certain theory that he was trying to verify, was completely shocked by the non-hierarchical and very egalitarian social structures that he found in the Blackfoot um, community. Um, But then what he did was he took inspiration from their teachings, but then filtered it through a very individualistic lens and then came up with this idea of like self-actualization on the top of the triangle. When in reality, like the Blackfoot teachings were, had self-actualization as the base level of the TP and like community actualization as being the focus. So like, not only were the Blackfoot people completely erased from this and, you know, Maslow got all of the credit, but all of the teachings were also filtered through this very narrow lens. Right. And yeah you know, used to come up with a completely different. Yeah. Messed up. Um, all right. So we, we're going to talk a little bit more about like some more positive psychological developments and activism. But before we get to that, um, <laughs> I, I need to go on a little rant. I was like, here. wait, are we skipping around? Um, <laughs> same. I was like, what's happening? Um, I just like want to let people know it's coming. We're not going to talk about only terrible negative shit, but I mean, we are going to. Gonna... That's, that's true. You're right. Um, well, so I did want to focus a little bit in on Freud, partly because he's like, probably the most well-known psychologist at least in like the US father culture. of psychology <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes exactly um he he also has just had a really long-lasting impact on like pop psychology and kind of like the cultural ideas of how our brains work um and i think maybe even more disturbingly he seems to still be influential in how psychology is practiced today in some ways 
Um, so I just wanted to start us off with like a little bit of debunking of some of his theories because I think they're just so widespread. It took me personally a really long time to realize like how much they are just not true and not really like based on scientific research. Um, so I think one of the main ideas that I wanted to mention here is this idea that like sexual fantasies and sexuality are almost entirely shaped by childhood experiences. So people may have heard about this. Freud had this theory of sexual development where you progress through these stages. There's the oral phase, the anal phase, the phallic phase, and then the genital phase. I hate um, it. <laughs> which, yeah, just a really bad naming. Um, I don't really know what was going on there. But essentially the idea is that there's like different parts of your body that you're more fixated on sexually as you grow up. Um, but then these theories also led into, unsurprisingly, a lot of like sexist and homophobic ideas. Um, so, for example, Freud theorized that if you were gay, that meant that you like got stuck in this regressive anal phase and you never made it to the genital phase. And that's why you're gay. Um, and there was also this idea that women who couldn't orgasm through penetrative sex only were like stuck at an earlier phase as well. Um, so kind of like Zoe was talking about, it's like taking this thing that probably has a lot of social and cultural reasoning behind it and personal reasoning and essentially making it like this is just a disease that we can cure in this very simple way. Um, and I think that some of these ideas still show up in the way that people who are into BDSM and kink are assumed to be victims of abuse. Um, I think that's also something we see with like queer women are often assumed to be victims of abuse from men. Um, and while a lot of people do experience sexual abuse, including childhood sexual abuse, and that often has impacts on the ways we experience our sexuality, I think it's problematic to frame something that can be like a healthy, normal sexual behavior as solely a trauma response. And that often allows it to be pathologized and treated as inherently harmful when for most people in most cases, it's not. Um, and there is some truth to this idea that bad experiences in our childhood have some relationship to our later lives. Um, I think that kind of falls into the category of something that's like so obvious you really don't need like a scientific reasoning behind it. Like things that happen to us impact us. That is true. <laughs> um, but not in this very specific way that Freud theorized. Um, and I also think that this model kind of presents mental illness as a specific individual problem that's caused by like the individual bad things your parents did to you or individual things you did as a child, as opposed to like just the fact that there is there are a lot of social reasons um, why adults who have power over children are able to do bad things to them. Um, and I was just looking at this one national survey that found that more than 60% of adults said that they had experienced some form of violence or neglect in childhood, um, which I think just indicates that this is a really widespread problem that needs a broader solution, um, not like an individual solution that pathologizes one person's response to that. Um, I think free birth control, free childcare, free healthcare for everyone would be a really good start in addressing some of that. But that's, you know, for a different episode. <laughs> we can talk more about that. Um, I think one of the um, the funniest tweets that I've seen lately, and sorry, Twitter user, I don't remember who it was, was just like, how hot must Freud's mom have been? Because his entire <laughs> career was based on like, people are sexually okay. attracted to their parents and it ruins their lives. It's like, maybe that was just him. Yeah. That, oh, but this was, also, this was also, this was also, 
something I read recently of like his way of like gaslighting um, childhood sexual assault. Like basically, um, apparently a lot of his early findings was about like the prevalence of childhood sexual assault and all of the traumatic effects that had on children. Um, but he like basically couldn't deal with that and inverted it to say that these are all just fantasies imagined by the child. And so mm. like this whole invert, like Ugh. flipping of the narrative of like, oh, it's not that this child was abused by their parent, it's that this child has sexual fantasies about their parent. Was this whole like flipping of the script Ew. that just functioned He's such as, like, a, a fucking weirdo. gaslighting, victim blaming. Yeah, yeah. yeah, a child. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that also plays into what you were talking about before, Sashank, where it's like even the research questions and framework are shaped by right. the researcher's beliefs. And right. in this case, it was like he just could not conceptualize that that was actually true. So he made up a different right. explanation for right. it. And needed to protect all the powerful men uh, right. that were the perpetrators of this. Yeah. Yeah. So one other idea that I think Freud is that Freud sort of popularized that I think is still in our culture very prominently is this idea that our dreams reveal kind of like our real secret desires that we might be trying to suppress or like we might not want to express or we might not even be consciously aware of ourselves. Um, and this also goes along with this idea he had of the id, ego, and superego. So basically the id is like your dark, like, I don't know, like, animalistic desires that are sort of like more similar to other animals besides humans and then the super ego represents the like you know rules of society and like the part of you that's like no I can't just like run around naked in the street and like I need to not kill people and all of that and then the ego sort of like integrates those two um there are many, many issues with this idea. Um, I think one is probably that like the superego was based on a very specific like Western governmental notion of morality um, and Christian idea of morality that's just like very different in different cultures. And again, like he was really basing this on one culture, which is the culture that he lived in. And that would look very different in different places. Um, but also it's, you know, there's still a lot that we don't understand about dreams, but, um, you know, it's true that we don't really have control over them, but it is not true that they are like expressing something that you secretly want to happen. Um, they're generally just sort of like a random amalgamation of things that you experience throughout the day, kind of like coming out and being like matched up in new ways so you know if you have like a sex dream about your boss that does not mean that you secretly want to have sex with your boss um maybe it means like you're having a hard time at work i don't know but like it doesn't literally mean that you want that to happen um and i think that's something that is still pretty like people think that that's true to some degree partly because freud made that idea so popular so i wanted to close out this rant by mentioning that even though like it seems like there are a lot of obvious reasons to not continue teaching Freud in like a psychology context. When I was a psychology major in college, he was one of the first people we studied in our intro class. Same. Um, I didn't it wasn't my major, but it was a gen ed I took yeah. psych one and it was 
it was like all of these fuckers that we've been dragging. Yes, exactly. Um, And I think like the way that I typically see his work presented, especially in intro textbooks, is kind of like there'll be an intro part that's like, Freud was wrong about some things and right about others. And then they just (laughs) present all of his most famous ideas without mentioning like most of those ideas are wrong. Yeah. So it's like, (laughs) They mentioned that his work has mostly been discredited, but not in any specific way. And then they still like explain Teach all it. of these theories, right? right. Um, as though there's some validity to them. And I think especially in like a psychology class, you kind of assume that everything you're learning is like still accurate and still what people believe. And like having it taught in that context, I think is very dangerous. Um And I think, like, Freud obviously played a huge role in our culture. I think it can make sense to teach him in, like, a literature or philosophy class where you can present alternative viewpoints and, like, talk about why these ideas are still so, like, captivating to us. But I think just teaching him in the scientific context is very problematic. Um, And I ended up deciding not to become a psych major for many reasons, but I think, like, this did play a small role in it for me. Like, I really did not, like that these ideas were presented as though they were true to Mm -hmm. students who wanted to go on to practice psychology. And I was like, this is like, you are training people who are going to continue acting like this is true and it's not. And I hate that. Yeah. So yeah, that, that is my beef with Freud. It's good beef. So obviously I'm interested in this if anyone has been listening to the podcast at all. Um, But also I know um, that you in a reading group had kind of been like, that's really exciting to me because like, I'm interested in this as well. Um, Can you tell me more about like what your thoughts are on psychedelics for treating mental illness or like whatever your own research has been on in this field? Yeah. So I haven't actually done much formal research on this, but um, so I'll defer to Zoe and others. But um, the one thing I do know is unlike some of the old ideas, about pharmacology that have this very biomedical focus of like drugs to fix some chemical imbalance. Um, Psychedelic assisted psychotherapy has like a very different paradigm where, like you mentioned in your episode set in setting matter and the effect of the drug is to create these like powerful changes in brain states, but which then need to interact with a nurturing environment. So like the psychosocial aspects become very important. And I think that's a powerful um, paradigm shift. Yeah, it's like what you were describing, what uh, you and Bianca were describing before about like trying to make people more uh, okay with their mental illness, like so that they can function under capitalism is what maybe other um, medicines related to mental illness can help with. But this is a very different thing. So cool. Right. Yeah, totally. I'll just add a little bit. We are going to do an episode on this in a few weeks. Um, so I'll, I'll keep it brief. But as Sashank alluded to, the research I've been doing as of lately is um, primarily focused on like applying a decolonial feminist framework to how psychedelics are used in psychological research and assistive therapies, um, which is kind of a mouthful, but it's really just like, you know, not being shitty about it. And... <laughs> <laughs> The TLDR is don't be shitty about it. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I plan to become certified in facilitating psychedelic assisted therapy, which is part of why I'm doing this research. So just like two things that I'll um, briefly leave us with on this episode is 
Um, one of the big things is like broadening the definition of what counts as trauma, a little bit of history about um, trauma as it is known in psychology. It was first um, discovered as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans. And that's why people have such a like close association with vets and trauma. That is how it was originally used and intended. The definition is a little bit broader now. It does relate to sexual trauma, um, close deaths, a few other traumatic events, but it's still like really pretty narrow. Um, And part of broadening that is, I was gonna be like twofold, several folds. One is um, gendered, different forms of gendered trauma other than just sexual trauma. Also a lot of racialized trauma is left out. And something that I think is super important is intergenerational trauma, um, especially as we think about black and indigenous people and how those traumas are passed down, especially in that indigenous people have used psychedelics um, for these forms of healing for centuries. So we'll get more into that in a couple of weeks. And also in that vein, um, with the studies of psychedelics, because it's often for PTSD is one of the main things that they look at is that a lot of the studies, um, back to what Bianca was saying, are done on the quote, like weird populations. And so it's mainly white men and how they process trauma. And as you could imagine, people process trauma very differently. And they're like, just because you have something that counts as like trauma does not mean it acts the same in your brain and will be healed in similar ways. And so only focusing these studies on very specific populations, cis white men is of course very limiting in like what the actual um, potential efficacy is. So tune back in in a couple of weeks. I'm I, so I also just got accepted into a, a clinical study for this too, um, and I think that it's going to be it, like the the person running it is specifically I think trying some different stuff that seems to be a bit out of the box and not like I've read before. So I'm excited about some of the people in the field kind of pushing it that way too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's not exclusively that, but it's um, like the big, like mainstream, like psychedelic research organizations are like very oh, classically yeah. psychology. Oh, for sure. Yeah, um, I think that carries really well into something else I know you wanted to talk about, Zoe, which is kind of some of the history of more radical thought in psychology. Um, so we've talked a lot about the bullshit, but there obviously have always been people who are resisting this stuff as well. Um, so did you want to talk a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. So um, the Radical Psychiatry Manifesto, it's super short. I think it's only like two, three pages. Would definitely recommend. I think you can find it online, but it was written by um, Cloud Steiner in 1969, addressing how to radicalize the field. Steiner argues that there should be an emphasis on healing work rather than quote, like patients, illness and treatment, um, like what Sashank was saying before. And he believed that individual psychiatry promotes oppression by placing blame on the individual rather than on the systems of oppression that they live under. He wrote that quote, people's troubles have their cause not within the individual, but in their alienated relationships, in their exploitation, in polluted environments, in war and in the profit motive. Um, he further stated that, quote, by remaining neutral in oppressive situations, psychiatry has become an enforcer of establishment values and laws. And psychiatry also helps people to adjust to their prevailing conditions rather than addressing those conditions. It forces conformity with diagnosis and treatments, like we've talked about. 
And then I also wanted to talk a little bit more about the um, decolonial aspect of psychology. And as I said, my research mainly relates to psychedelic research and therapy, but this of course applies very generally to the field. So within the discipline of psychedelic science and psychology at large, it's really gone hand in hand with colonialism. And this is in part because of the hegemony within Western science over other forms of knowledge. Um, this anthropologist named Evangia Fautois, um, I perhaps said that Perfect. <laughs> um, explored ways to decolon decolonize psychedelic science and understand the indigenous ways of knowledge. So Western discourse around psychedelics tends to be very individualistic, like Sasank was saying, and focus on the personal experience and medicalization. And the effects of that are we'll say twofold, as I said before. Um, the first is that it erases the tradition from which these substances were appropriated, which renders the indigenous traditions to um, quote, and this is from Fauteuil as well, romantic stereotypes of noble savages. And secondly, the medicalization causes scientists to miss important lessons that could potentially transform ways of science. Kind of like I was saying before, it really changes how you view efficacy if you're viewing it in this very like Western sense of like individual treatment and like specific ailments versus a more like holistic healing framework. Um, a lot of the information on the healing potential of psychedelics, which has been used as we know, and as I've mentioned for in indigenous communities for centuries has been largely left out of the Western discourse around it. Um, colonialism and racism have significantly impacted drug stigmatization and policy one of the main reasons for drug policy, um, thank you to starting with Nixon, uh, up through our boy Reagan, Bill Clinton, Hate it. the Bush administration, all Biden, the, Obama, all of their all motherfuckers. Of <laughs> they have all furthered this like quote war on drugs, but um, the primary reason behind that was because of racial associations and criminalization. Yeah, the prison industrial complex, you've, you've maybe heard of it. Um, <laughs> Thank you for laughing at my jokes. Um, so for example, peyote, um, which was used by some Native Americans was considered a crime, not less than eating human flesh um, by the colonizers that were writing about their behaviors. And this is a stark juxtaposition to how it's seen amongst affluent white people who use psychedelics and pretty much anything else that's considered a like scheduled substance or drug, which I say all in quotes because there's like not a great word to describe drugs, but I also just think because of the connotations, it's like I hate being like a substance, substance use. It's just like you sound like an arc. Um, that's that's just me. And then yeah, another important aspect for the decolonialization, which relates back to the discussion about pathology, is the idea that, um, like we were saying, specific treatments should be applied to specific ailments in Western biomedicine, and it seeks to like cure people and eliminate disease and normalize everyone to like this like capitalist standard. Um, whereas like indigenous knowledge systems for healing have a much more holistic view of wellness. Um, and to quote Fautois yet again. Um, Western studies cannot even begin to scratch the surface of what plant medicines have achieved. So yeah, essentially part of decolonizing psychedelic science and psychology at large is um, changing efficacy, like I was saying, and having this more like holistic view. So anyway, we'll be getting into it more in a few weeks, um, but there you go. There you have it. But I think Sashank was going to talk to us about some other radical psychology um, practices and frameworks that you've encountered. 
Yeah, so the ones that um, I've encountered are like um, black feminist disability justice frameworks and liberation psychology that um, can sort of lead the way for us towards um, anti-racist, anti-ableist and anti-capitalist approaches to psychology. And I just want to shout out um, Dr. Victoria McNeil Young and Ali Track, who are organizers at Academics for Black Lives um, for all of their like invaluable teachings in this space. And I've learned a lot from them. One of the things I think is that we need to center survivors of psychiatric harm and folks with lived experiences of trauma or mental illness or neurodivergence rather than experts in the ivory tower. Like you are an expert on your own mental experience and that's legitimate embodied knowledge and self-identification is valid. And I really like this um, phrase from disability justice of nothing about us without us. Mm-hmm. So um, amazing. at best, like we can be collaborators with people um, with these different conditions, but we can't be experts on their mental and lived experiences. And they have to be part of the equation at all levels in, um, you know, right from asking the question to figuring out what the, solutions should be. And a good example of this is the uh, BIPOC Liberation from Psychiatric Harm Project, which people can check out, um, which documents the lived experiences of people who've um, encountered psychiatric harm. We'll link to all these things that Sashank is talking about in the description. Yeah. Um, And also we need kind of an abolitionist lens to end the coercive practices of psychology and psychiatry like involuntary hospitalization and police presence and crisis response and wellness checks and all of that good stuff. And um, I think we've talked about this a bit, but Liat Ben Moshe has a book called Decarcerating Disability, which is a great place to start reading about some of this. Yeah, uh, Liat's work is so good. I love it. A couple of other thinkers around this kind of area of abolition and disability justice that I wanted to plug are S.E. Smith and Leia Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinya. There are also um, some folks that have really great writings about this. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about Leah Ben Moisha also because my friend Rob recommended her writings to me. Rob, if you're listening, I love you very much. Um, And I think we actually read the intro to her book way back last summer in reading. Yeah. Um, And I think it was because Rob sent it to me. So, yeah. Um, But having read that, I think even just from that section alone, she like very thoroughly and clearly makes the link between like disability and the carceral ways that it's often treated and like the need for abolition as an as a disability rights issue as well. And one kind of concrete um, action thing that people can do is join this um, campaign called hashtag stop the shock, which um, is trying to get, you know, eliminate uh, torture using electric shocks on autistic and neurodivergent folks. Um, And kind of in that, in the like abolitionist vein, we also, we need like non-carceral alternatives, um, the presence, not absence of these other frameworks and support systems. And there's a bunch um, that I've found. The um, Therapist Neurodivergent and Neurodiversity Collective is one of them. And there's also 
uh, things like the Trans Lifeline, which doesn't call the cops in mental crises, and the Fireweed Collective, intentional peer support. Yeah, I think um, one thing I just wanted to mention here is this framework of, it's often called like healing justice or healing by choice. Um, so this is something that the Fireweed Collective and other similar folks use. It's essentially like a non-carceral alternative um, that focuses mutual aid and healing. So things like um, building up your own support network um, and creating those structures for yourself where you won't feel like you need to call the cops or face involuntary confinement um, when you're going through a moment of crisis. Well, I also, when I was thinking about this episode, was thinking about Zoe, like you've talked about your abortion doula work and Laura, you do astrology consultation work. Um, and I think those are both like a form of alternatives to more like coercive and carceral healthcare models. Um, so I'm curious if either of y'all wanna discuss connections that you see there um, or if anyone else wants to add stuff about that hell yeah I just wanted to say briefly about astrology I think like some astrology can be wonky and tied up in a lot of the systems that we've kind of discussed here but a lot of astrologers are pushing back on that and trying to like decolonize and de-westernize astrology as well um, and the thing that I have found and and what I think my whatever clients like I don't I don't know how to talk about it yet uh would say is that it's it's more about seeking understanding uh about parts of yourself that might be confusing to you rather than trying to pathologize anything right it's more about thinking through how we are to better be at peace with ourselves and to better uh serve ourselves and serve others too yeah, totally. Yeah, I feel like we actually talked about that when we did like maybe the first astrology episode and we were talking about like seeking astrology at times where you were like having bad therapists or like didn't want to be in therapy or didn't want to be pathologized, etc. Totally. Um, so yeah, that just reminded me of that conversation. And then yeah, I can talk a little bit about the doula work because we talked about it on the um, podcast before. But I think honestly, like the main thing for me about why that work feels really powerful is that it's so rare and you can tell in people's like responses to working with me is that it's so rare in the medical system to have someone who's like fully on your side supportive of your decisions whatever they may be and just like there to offer like factual unbiased information even like you know doctors that we think of as like unbiased are still like whatever we know they're bought by the drug companies. They want money. They're, they're capitalists. Um, or they're at least coerced by the capitalist state. Um, so anyway, yeah, just having someone who's like on your side, especially to navigate those things is like very helpful. And also being able to offer like actual care to other people, like making people going through something that like can be stressful, can be really difficult. Just like feel cared about and have someone who is like there for them, which is not really what is provided in like the healthcare models that we have. Right, totally. And then two like sort of smaller individual level things um, that I've been thinking about. Um, one is kind of trying to unlearn our own internalized ableism and sanism in kind of our everyday words that we use and the way we kind of use these pathologizing um, terms for various various things and the way we fear people with uh, neurodivergent, neurodivergent people or people with mental illness. And we can learn a lot from 
a bunch of movements that have kind of constantly been teaching us how to do this. So the neurodiversity movement, um, critical psychiatry and anti-psychiatry movements and mad pride movements. And you can read about these in um, a lot of places. And then kind of my own like very limited theoretical uh, approach that I try to take in my research is anytime I'm working on thinking about a psychological process, I try to do kind of three things. So I try to explicitly identify what psychological norm is being used as a reference, like who decides what is considered normal or rational. And then second, I try to put these in like historical, cultural, social context, like whose lived experience is this adapted to? And then third, try to think about like whose interest and intervention is targeting. Like, does the individual want to change this condition about themselves or is it the family or is it the state? And like, in which direction are these corrective actions being taken or which mm. levels are being intervened on? Is it the individual? Is it the disabling oppressive system? And like a very concrete example of this is cognitive distortions, which is a concept that's taught widely in psychotherapy. Sometimes cognitive distortions can be a useful tool to think about when a belief of yours might be mismatched to reality, but sometimes they can also act as a form of gaslighting where you have a certain lived experience and hence like an accurate belief about something terrible in the world. And somebody who doesn't have that lived experience can gaslight you into saying, oh, that's not real. That's just in your head. That's just a cognitive distortion. Mm. And so that's kind of an example of what I try to keep in mind. Extremely powerful. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, Sashank. This has yes, been thank amazing. You. Thanks for having me. It's been thank great you to so be much. here. Yeah. Well, that was freaking amazing, of course, because Sashank is an absolute icon. <laughs> uh, we were so lucky to like have gotten to know him through through that process. And, you know, if you want to become a friend of the pod, quite literally, um, one of the best ways to do that is by joining our reading group or joining our discord. And the way you do that is patreon.com slash season of the bitch. You can also at us and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at season of the B. You can rate, review, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. And pretty much that's it. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I love you all so much. Love you. Love you. Bye. 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 <laughs> Season of the Bitch.